Welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. Tonight in the Rum Society, we were debating whiskey versus rum. We had Bailey Pryor, CEO of the Real McCoy Rum in the house, battling it out with Fred Minnick, author of Rum Curious, the book Bourbon Curious, and editor-in-chief of Bourbon Plus magazine. It was an incredible conversation, a great debate. We hope you enjoy Well, first, I just want to say, like, you know, when I walked in here, I, I looked at the bar and I was looking around. And I saw all the I saw the brands and I, I kept looking for the whiskey. And I was like, huh, there, there's no whiskey here. And I mentioned it to Pedro and he's like, he's looking around. He's like, oh, shit, I got to go to seven grand. <laughs> so, you know, before we even get here, the rum boys are trying to stack the deck against uh, against whiskey. Well, first, what we're going to do is we're actually going to have a pretty cool tutorial on the difference between pot and column. And for that, I'm going to turn it over to one of the renowned world experts uh, in this category, and that's uh, Bailey Pryor. Thank you very much. If you guys Thank don't you know guys. Bailey, Bailey, if I can introduce you, Bailey is the founder of The Real McCoy Rum. He's also six-time Emmy winner, um, a famous documentarian. If you have ever watched the Warren Miller films, cool, super awesome ski movies, that's this guy here. But Bailey, uh, you can walk us through this, but then I want you to tell the story of how you got into the rum business. It's really funny. Sure, story. sure, sure. So, uh, hi everybody. Thank you for coming out tonight. We really appreciate it. We just wanted to share something really special with you guys, and I'll tell you a little bit about my silly ride uh, as we go along. So what you have in front of you is a tall glass, this guy, and a small glass. The tall glass has a very different spirit in it than probably most of you have ever tried in this way. And what that is, is this is 100% multi-column still, completely unadulterated, and most people can never access this, right? So you have to go to the distillery and get the guys to give you an actual sample of this, which they will not do to the average consumer. You have to know them and get them to give you this. And then you have to smuggle it into the United States and bring it across to the the country to this bar so that you guys can try it yes. but it's actually very really cool because what you're what you're going to taste here is the difference between batch and continuous right which is batch meaning pot still continuous meaning column still so um maybe in a sec yeah triple fist that yeah, so uh, thank I got you it. so the uh the idea behind this is just do a real quick tasting on this and what you're going to get if you first just go for the nose on each of them go back and forth between one and two the big one and the little one, you'll notice anything different about them? Yes, there you go. That's an eye-opener for just about everybody. So the whole point is, what you're getting at is, whenever you're making a distilled spirit, most people just kind of stampede right past the fermentation process, and they just start talking about stills. But the truth is, about 70% of what you're tasting in any distilled spirit is coming from the fermentation. So if you put that in a batch process, if you put that into a pot still, pot stills are very inefficient at extracting the alcohol out of that wine or mash or beer or whatever you want to call it, right? It's all the same stuff. So you can make uh, you know, a grape-based fermentation. You can do a wheat or a corn or barley or sugarcane-based fermentation. And these are all different products that end up being vodka, rum, gin, cachaça, things like that. So the idea is if you go with a batch process, a pot still, you can get all these flavors that will persist. They'll still be there after it's been distilled. That's what you're smelling in the little cup. So that's the fermentation. 
If you put it in a multi-column still, those are so efficient. They're so excellent at stripping it clean and making essentially neutral spirit. You could make neutral spirit with some of these stills for the big multi-column stills, and they get to be basically odorless, even though it's exactly the same wine going into these things. So that's the difference between the two. So now as you are going out into the world and looking at different spirits, whether it's tequila, gin, rum, whiskey, whatever, you're going to look at it a little bit differently because if you have something that is a batch process, it's really, really slow and really, really expensive. It takes us about eight hours in our pot still in Barbados to make one 400-liter batch. Right? That We'll get 400 liters in eight hours of work with three people constantly monitoring the, the process. If you put it, the same uh, fermentation, the same wine into a multi-column still, it will take 10 minutes instead of eight hours to give you the same volume of distilled spirit at a much higher proof. So you just have different technologies and different uses of them. Some people like things very light, like vodka drinkers and folks like that might really like this. And then some people like things really heavy. That would be the pot still people, people interested in big Jamaican pot stills. If you guys have ever tried that, big beautiful rums, you can get it that way. Gins, there's a lot of gins that are made this way. In fact, you do a little pot still vodkas and then they move it into the gin world. Really interesting stuff. So try the first one, try the second one, understand the difference between pot and column. It's a very rare experience. If any of you have ever, has anybody here ever tried 100% pot still rum before? Raise your hands. So, quite a few. Good people. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Good Rum people. Society, I would hope some of you would, for sure. But how many people have tried a 100% multi-column still? All of you raise your hand. You just did. There you go. Okay, so now you got a little bit of an understanding behind it. So, as you, move into your, uh, as you move into your future understanding spirits, recognize that fermentation is hugely important, and the apparatus that you distill in makes it all, all the difference. So, back to Fred. Did, do we have a favorite here? Who, who liked the, uh, the tall glass, the multi-column glass the most? Yeah, really? right. And who liked the pot still, the short glass the most? Yes. Yeah. Here's to inefficiency. Inefficiency. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the, tell us, what, what, what was the multi-column uh, spirit? What, what, tell us what the, both of them were real quick. Sure. So the, the multi-column was a barley wine. That's a really important one. And the, the little one is actually a Jamaican pot still rum. So you'd think I'd bring my real McCoy and Barbados and Richard Seal and all that kind of stuff, but we didn't have enough for, for everybody, so we were going to just do something that we knew we could get in the, in the right volume. But the Jamaican stuff is actually really famous, and this is actually the, uh, the folks who make rum fire, the Hampton distillery. Have you guys ever heard of Hampton? Vivian, Vivian uh, Wisdom, he's known as Mr. Wisdom, is their master distiller. Great guy, really talented person, amazing. And they, these guys still use dunder pits. They still you know, have these incredible fermentation vats. If you go online and you see it, most people have to wear like a hazmat suit just to walk into their fermentation room. So uh, it really gives you some funk, and you're getting that in the glass right there. It's awesome. It, it really is kind of a unique experience. And one, one of the things I like to point out about the multi-column is that it's basically the same the same stills that are being used to make ethanol and vodka. So when you're and gasoline, and gasoline, gasoline, a lot of gasoline. That's ethanol, yeah. So when you are when you are going to the store and you're buying vodka, any vodka drinkers in here? <laughs> Nobody wants to admit it. Come on. We're like people are like shamed. There was a little. There was a. I drank vodka once. <laughs> That's very good because we totally would shame anybody who is drinking vodka. So, so the exit signs are over there okay. for the vodka drinkers. <laughs> oh so, 
But then there's a good audience if we don't have any vod true vodka drinkers in here. So well, at least not anyone that's willing to admit it. That's right. But you know, a lot of times I do these I do these things, and I I always pick on vodka because vodka is pretty easy to pick on, and it should be picked on. But today we're talking about you know rum versus rum versus whiskey. This is something that's actually really near and dear to my heart. Not you know I tend to write about the things that I love, and I I've written a, a rum book. I've written, uh, you know, three whiskey books, and they're all dedicated to my wife, you know, who's, who is a, is a fan of all of them. And so rum versus whiskey is something that is, is it's, in a lot of ways, it's kind of my own personal battle inside. What, what am I in the mood for? But it goes so much further back. When, we're, even when, we're, when, it, when we look at this country, the United States of America, my God, we drank a lot of rum back in the day. You know, we drank more rum than we, we drank whiskey uh, in the colonial time frame. In fact, when our English overlords were tell, you know, dictating to us what we could and could not do as uh, you know, peasants in their eyes in many respects, they told us not to distill with uh, corn. And they also restricted the Irish from, uh, from distilling with, with corn. And they wanted us to distill with molasses. And one of the big reasons why was the molasses was largely coming from the British Sugar Islands. And so they were getting uh, revenue from, from distilling, you know, from, from us distilling that. And they were, we were also importing a lot of rum here. Now, there was New England rum makers and there were Louisiana rum makers. And there were some molasses coming from uh, Louisiana. But the majority of it was coming from the British Sugar Islands. And when we became, when we started uh, getting frustrated with the taxes that were levied on molasses and sugar and the tariffs that were put on rum, uh, they started boarding ships and pouring the molasses overboard. Uh, one of them was famously called the, uh, the Boston Tea Party. But before the Boston Tea Party, there was the Portsmouth uh, Molasses Party. Now, molasses and rum were not the reasons why we went into the Revolutionary War. There's a lot of people who like to say that, and occasionally you'll see one of these like uh, articles on, online that says we went to war because we were drunks and we were trying to save money on on what we were drinking. That's not true necessarily. We just did. I think we just kind of wanted to revolt. It sent us. It was in the culture to like revolt at some point, and that was one of the things that helped push Americans over the edge. And so obviously we went to we went to war with the English, and we won. But our main general was a huge rum drinker. Uh, George Washington, who was a whiskey distiller, had uh, barrels of Barbados rum brought into his inauguration to serve. Four square distillery, actually. Four square. In fact, what's amazing, it was actually the real McCoy. You know, he traveled forward in time to get a barrel of, of your rum. That, that, I still can't believe that happened. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's, that's the next back label, right? George Washington actually founded the rum. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not real. It's not he was a, going like this on the back label. <laughs> so George Washington was a big, big rum fan. But, but as a country, the Congress and the leaders looked at rum as a way of you know, benefiting our enemies. So the Spaniards and, and, and the English, all of them would be benefiting from us bringing in molasses or buying rum. So they started heavily taxing molasses as a country, 
and heavily tariffing um, the imported rum. The New England rum makers tried to boycott, but it wasn't strong enough because the country was trying to encourage farming. And in fact, in Kentucky, if you planted corn in some areas, you would be given a plot of land. So we were trying to encourage people to plant corn and it would eventually be distilled. And they wanted to open the door for American whiskey. And the only way that they could do that was really to penalize rum. And so rum, which is arguably this country's very first spirit that it fell in love with, you could also make a case for brandy. But rum, from a volume perspective, was what we were drinking. In the 1830s and 1840s, by this time, Jamaican rum was tariffed so heavily that it was four or five times more expensive than Kentucky or Tennessee whiskey. And so if you wanted to, you know, you'd be paying, you'd be paying a, do, a buck fifty in comparison to a quarter for, um, for, for Kentucky whiskey. It was the same with Barbados rum. Even the New England rum was two or three times more expensive because they were having to import uh, a lot of the molasses. And so as a country, by design, we wanted to penalize and hurt rum to open the doors for American whiskey. You get into the, you get, you also during that time frame, American whiskey was not getting taxed. T President Thomas Jefferson repealed the whiskey tax in uh, 1802, and it only reappeared to pay for the War of 1812. So, so from 1817 to basically the Civil War, there was no tax on whiskey, and that developed, that basically encouraged a lot of businesses around the country. Uh, New Jersey at one time had 2,000 distilleries. You know, Kentucky, Tennessee, Maryland, New York, and Pennsylvania kind of became the hallmark American whiskey states. And during that time, rum was becoming less and less served in America. And in fact, you would start seeing a lot of imitation rum. And the imitation rum played a big problem in, uh, in the medicinal battle for, for doctors. Doctors at that time were prescribing spirits for if you had a swollen toe, if you were sick, you got, you got prescribed whiskey or rum or, or brandy. Well, the doctors would study the, the different spirits as they would today. And they would, one of the ways that they, they studied them was they would inject rabbits with, with the spirit. And brandy and whiskey fared pretty well with the sick rabbits, and rum killed all the rabbits. So it's one of those, it didn't, it started phasing out from a medicinal purpose, even though it was used in the British Navy well into the 1970s. But in America, uh, rum had a bit of a, it had a little bit uh, less of an appeal for it in, uh, in, the, in the medicinal sense. Also, the Kentucky distillers and the Pennsylvania distillers started working together, and they would fight like Congress to legislate things for them. One of the cases is like the Bottle and Bond Act of 1897, which was a, our country's first consumer protection legislation. And that basically means it has to be made at one distillery, one distilling season, be four years old and 100 proof. There's a lot of other things to go to, but that's kind of the core of it. And at that same time, while whiskey was starting to work together, rum was starting to you know, fall apart and to kind of be more individualized. Uh, you know, they would not... They were never really kind of a cohesive group, but by the early 1900s, they were really kind of every island for themselves, and you didn't really have, um, you started to see, you know, the Spanish-style rums kind of 
go in one direction and the Jamaican and the Barbados rums go in another direction. So you didn't have that same kind of cohesive effort and that would be something that would hurt rum. Later on down the line, including today, you still kind of see it being a problem. But the one thing that rum had over whiskey going into the 1900s is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola and rum and whiskey would battle for Coca-Cola for about 100 years in terms of who gets to win the American consumer to be in Coca-Cola. Crown and Coke, Jack and Coke, or rum and Coke, or Jim Beam and Coke. Every one of those major distilleries I just mentioned purchased time to be with Coca-Cola at one point or another in their career. I kind of look at it as a, as a wash. Anybody here drink whiskey and Coke, rum and Coke? Do you have a preference for whiskey and Coke, rum and Coke? I, I think rum and Coke is, is, is a little better, but there are some whiskeys that I love in, in a Coke. And it's Jack Daniels is probably, it's probably the only time I really consistently drink it in Coke because you can really taste that banana note. But you have... You have a nice Jamaican rum or a nice Barbados rum in a Coca-Cola. You get some of that kind of fun funkiness in there with it. It's really, really nice. I feel like the Bacardi's and some of those lighter rums, they kind of fall apart in it. You don't taste it as much. That's a little bit, it's a little bit more neutral for me. But there'd be a long battle for, for Coca-Cola uh, between whiskey and rum. It's kind of fascinating, actually. And then when we get into, right leading up to Prohibition, to me, this is where rum also gets a, a big victory. Rum was really well positioned to be bootlegged in. You'll hear a little bit more about from this guy with the real McCoy. Rum was ready to be bootlegged back into the United States through the various rum runner networks that were set up. While whiskey kind of got flat-footed, they were trying to make deals. A lot of them were trying to make deals with the islands, uh, like the Bahamas and Cuba. Uh, the Bahamas actually acquired a lot of uh, Pennsylvania rye before Prohibition, and they bootlegged it back in, and then the Kentucky distillers tried to make a deal with Cuba. Cuba wanted too much money for it, so they ended up, they ended up uh, getting a, striking a deal with uh, Congress to have medicinal whiskey in the Prohibition Act, and you'd be amazed how many people were sick during Prohibition, and so you had people going to the, to the doctor and getting scripts, you know, for whiskey. You could also get cocaine and heroin, so it was a good time if you were sick. But the rum, rum would get bootlegged in. You would start seeing a lot more in the speakeasies. Coming into the 1930s, rum starts owning the bar. You have the tiki movement. You have uh, the mojito. You have the daiquiri kind of being served everywhere. You have a lot of appeal for rum cocktails, whereas whiskey is kind of served neat. And so rum basically begins winning the, the cocktail bar in Prohibition in the 1930s, while whiskey would try and stay kind of like a sipping crowd. And that would hurt them tremendously in the 1960s when vodka kind of comes on board and they're trying to compete with, uh, with vodka. And you would see the ads in the 1960s, they would say, enjoy bourbon with orange juice, enjoy it with apple juice, enjoy it with this. They were trying to compete in vodka space. Basically what they were saying is like, we don't know how to hell to serve this in a cocktail, but drink it with whatever you want. And it would be some time before whiskey would get kind of its cocktail, cocktailing culture back. And that's because, in large part, because people like Pedro at, at Seven Grand playing around with Rittenhouse Rye and some of these great bourbons and finding a place for them again in the cocktail shaker. But in the 19, and then from the 1960s on to the 1980s, 
we start seeing bourbon kind of fall apart. It's like year by year, it's losing market share, and the distillers are starting to put it, uh, efforts into tequila and rums. And rums going away from, um, you know, it's going more toward the lighter body styles, and you start to see like an appeal in like um, in the, the, the the blenders. You know, everybody wants a, a banana daiquiri in the '80s, and it kind of like. <laughs> It's kind of like takes, you know, that's kind of where rum sits for a while. And then there's like the birth of the internet, the birth of the Food Network, and all these cooking magazines, and people really, really getting a taste for just tasting something. You know, I remember growing up, you know, Olive Garden was fancy for me. You know, Red Lobster was fancy. I mean, now, I mean, I went across the street to, uh, to Broken Spanish, and I had probably one of the best, you know... Um, Latin meals I've had in a long time. And for you all, that's like Tuesday. But, you know, for a Kentucky boy, you know, we don't have anything like that. But, you know, now there's, there's flavor in every market you go to, and people are seeking out flavor. And I think that bourbon and rum have really appealing flavors. But that cohesiveness I talked about, about with rum, I feel like that puts rum at a little bit of a risk to capture what I believe to be the, the greatest renaissance of spirits consumers in, in history. And that is like the Burma consumer looking for new things to taste and venture out. There's so many sweet rums, there's so much debate about what is rum, there's so many multi-column stills being pushed, pushed on people and then with glycerin added to it, that there's a lot of issues. There's also a lot of distilleries that subsidize did you know that Captain Morgan is a, is a $3 billion subsidized distillery by our country? And that allows him to have marketing power that, that Bailey doesn't have, that Foursquare doesn't have, or Appleton. You know, so when these guys try to compete in, like, in, the, in the market, they don't have um, you know, a, a $3 million monthly ad budget. And so with that said, I kind of look at whiskey versus rum as, as there's a place for both of them, but I think that there's not, there's not a place for all rums, uh, for my, at least on my bar. In rum and whiskey, I think we should enjoy both of them, and I think now we're going to do we're a do little a blind, blind we're going to do a blind tasting. So you guys all have three spirits in your hands right now, and we're not going to discuss what they are. What I want you to focus on is your own ability to smell and taste. So... You've got the three. Keep track of one, two, and three, meaning the three, the order that they were given to you. Please remember what order they were given to you because it's important for us to be able to identify them after the fact. But I want you to nose them, stick your nose in the glass, breathe in gently through your mouth, waft those alcohol vapors over the back of your palate, and think about food words or think about what memories come to mind. Maybe it's your, your grandma's kitchen or a walk through the forest or something very specific, but share your experience. The Rum Society is a place where we can all share our stories. So what are you guys getting off that first one? Caramel. Caramel? Nutty, banana. All right, all right. And now, heard a pretty good gut, I heard a pretty good guess in the back there, but we don't want to reveal what these are just yet. That's right. So, the, no, you're, 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 you're doing exactly what I would have. So, good man. So now try stick your nose in that second one. What I would say is like use your nose first to try to decide which one you think your favorite is, just without even tasting it. 
and then start sipping, kind of go back and forth. And once you, you know, let your tongue lead you perhaps in a different direction from what your nose does. Your nose might tell you that this is your favorite. Your tongue might tell you something different. Allow that surprise to occur. So yeah, what do you guys get with that second one in the big glass? <laughs> you guys are no fun. Come on, all right. I want food words, not not booze words. A sherry cask, interesting. Okay. What are you guys getting? Andrew, what are you getting on that second one? Cola. Cola. Okay. Rich butterscotch. Butterscotch, definitely. Marzipan. I love that. I love marzipan. <laughs> you know, marzipan just kind of makes me want to take a long walk on the beach at night with the rum. And then, and then that third one, guys. What are you getting on that third one? Because I think the third one's very different. They're all very different to me. Uh, they smell all very different to me. They're definitely not the same. They're not the same. No, what are you guys getting on that third one? Anybody? Grass, banana, grass. Grass, banana. Now, is this kind of the marijuana grass, or are we talking... Okay, walk. All right, got it. So, how many people, have you, has everyone tasted all three now? Yeah. Taste, come on, taste, Penny. Get in there, lady. Well, we did, but now we're moving on. We got lots of spirits to cover tonight. This is going to be, we got to be you know, vigorous in our in adventuring. So, yeah, go ahead and tap it over your tongue. What do you guys, try to decide which one your favorite. How many people think number one is your favorite out of these three? Okay, okay. Okay. How many that's like five? Yeah. Five? Huh? How many people like number two the best out of these three? Two? Ooh. One, four, five, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. I got seventeen. Seventeen? And how many people like number three the best out of these? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. No, we had a new one come in. Eleven? Eleven. He's been at Lost Perlis. He doesn't count. He's gone. <laughs> it's fun over there, huh? I was there. Now, sir, you were, looked like you were waffling a little bit. You were on the two, and then, yeah, you liked two a little bit, and then you went to three. I like rice. You like rice. Ah. <laughs> so, let's have a grand reveal. What do we got? What do we got in there, Josh? What, what was number one? Number one is Wild Turkey Kentucky Spirit a Barrel Pick for seven grand. So yeah, this is a seven grand single barrel, single barrel bourbon. Number two. Thank you, Josh. The real McCoy. Ten-year-old. Ten this is our limited edition ten-year. Yeah, tell us what that is, Bailey. So this is a limited edition. We only did 3,000 bottles of this worldwide. And basically it's our it's our regular, our traditional 12-year aged rum. Um, and that's blended with also our 10-year age. So the 10-year was was aged actually in virgin oak, so not previously used barrels. They were Virgin oak, American oak, Quercus alba trees. So uh, we did 10 years in that. So the blending of the two, the 12-year and the 10-year, you have to go with the youngest age because we don't use words like Solera and put 97 years old and stuff like that on there. <laughs> so uh, we actually did the youngest age, and uh, it's got a really nice sort of peppery thing. And we, we were designing this specifically for people who are interested in whiskeys, you know, especially bourbons because it has very much that flavor profile. So that's why we wanted to sneak that in there with the whiskey tasting. Yeah, I kind of think of this as being a little bit of what we call maybe a hybrid spirit because you've got a rum distillate with basically kind of a bourbon process put onto it. That well, it's just the wood because you're, you're used to the, yeah, you're used to, you're used to the, the, the Quercus Alba tree. If you drink whiskey, you're drinking bourbon, you're drinking you know stuff that's been aged in those in those woods. And that so first that's the familiar char. note to you, yeah. 
in that first char and, and a relatively heavy char. Yeah, a heavy char for the first time. That's what really sets single barrel bourbon especially to me really pops because you get that so much surface area of distillate. That's the most surface area of distillate that you're going to get is from that single barrel expression and that first char, heavy char. And more importantly, really... the heavy char because if you're going for a very long aged product, sorry, if you're going for a long aged product, you want to do a lighter char. Right? The longer it goes, the more it's going to get over-oaked. You can over-oak a rum just like you can over-oak a wine. So if you're going for a short aging, you do a really heavy char, and that's why most bourbons have a really heavy char, like a number three, number four. And if you're going for you know, something that's going to be 15 years, 10 years, you know, nine years in that zone, you might go for a lighter char. In this case, we chose the heavy char because it is the whiskey style. So Josh, what was number three? High West, High West Rendezvous, Rendezvous Rye. Rye. Now this you is a fun one. Like this is a this is a blend of uh, of straight rye. It's a blend from uh, Barton, which is a Kentucky distillery, and they have uh, two ryes in there. One's a, a lower rye mash bill, and then it's a and they have uh, MGP or Lawrenceburg, Indiana uh, distillery there. It's a ninety five percent rye, so it's kind of fun. And I like to tell this story about about High West because. It, they're a very important distillery from uh, American whiskey history perspective. About 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, you'd walk into a liquor store and suddenly all these craft brands had, you know, 12, you know, to 15 year old whiskey. And it's funny because they had just opened the day before. And so they had, and, and if you read the back label, they talk about like how their grandpa came across the Atlantic and had the recipe, you know, stored in their shoe. Before, uh, before you know the the moonshiner, you know, he joined the moonshiner clans and what have you, and so they would create these backstories and try to sell consumers on the fact that um, you know they had a family history connected to the whiskey. When in reality, uh, their family history was the exact same as this former Seagram's plant in Indiana that was suddenly <laughs> suddenly selling uh, stocks to um, you know distilleries, and it really kind of put a black eye. On, on the business because it ended up being getting a lot of national news attention. There were some class action lawsuits behind it. It was really bad, but not all of them, not all the people who were buying it were trying to deceive consumers. High West was actually one of them who was fully disclosing where they were getting their products the entire time. They would disclose as much as they could. Some of these companies say, you know, we don't want people knowing. And so you have to sign like non-disclosure agreements. But instead of, uh, instead of doing, you know, bottling it as is, they would actually do blends. And so they have, their whole portfolio is filled with various blends and it tastes a lot different. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, they would later get acquired by Constellation Brands for $160 million. So, you know, they're innovative and they have a, a completely different flavor profile. But High West is a very, very important brand in the contemporary history of American whiskey. And now I think it's time for our Q&A portion with yes. a little bit with Bailey. Yes. So, um, and we're going to pour out some more spirits as we do our Q&A. Go ahead. So, yeah, we're going to walk around with some spirits. Shaggy's going to come around and uh, so offer him an empty glass. And we'll uh, – or are you guys going to pick up glass? Okay. So I have, I have a question for you, for you Bailey. Sure. Bailey, I, I really admire what you, what you have done. Uh, but you're, you're a filmmaker. I mean, you, 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 you just – Kind of, it's like one of those things where you're working on a film, and you fell in love with something so much that you had to start, uh, change your life, and do a business around that. Tell, tell us that story, Bailey. Like sure. how you got involved. Sure, sure. 
So uh, I produce documentary films mostly for PBS. About the last 12 years I've done, I think now we're at over 100 films in the last you know, 12, 15 years with PBS. I've done quite a few for Discovery Channel, ESPN, and a bunch of others. But it was, um, it was while I was making a documentary film about the rum runners of the Prohibition era for PBS that I came up with the idea to start the rum company. And I'm sitting in my office one day thinking, you know, I wonder if anybody's ever trademarked that term, the real McCoy, because I'm doing this biography on Bill McCoy, the first rum runner. Do you guys know the story of Bill McCoy? So he was, the, he was the pioneer rum runner of the Prohibition era. So in January of 1920, he was the very first person to go down to the Caribbean in a sailboat, fill it up with rum, and sail it up to New York City and act as a floating liquor store three miles offshore. And that was not illegal, because in 1920, three miles offshore was international water. So you could stay out there with impunity. The Coast Guard would go back and forth along the three-mile line. There was nothing they could do. So everyone would come out from New York City, and they would party out there. And raft up boats. They called it Rum Row. There were some nights when there were over 100 boats all partying. They bring out bands and food and music. It was a great time and it was sort of like a big yacht club party out there. And he ended up going back and forth, back and forth every single month with another load, about 3,000, 5,000 cases at a time. And he ended up supplying over 2 million bottles of rum to the speakeasies of New York. He also carried whiskey and rye and things like that. Um, but, but in the early days of Prohibition, he was only involved for the first three years of Prohibition from 1920 until January 23rd, 1923, when he got out. And uh, it went on for another 10 years after that, but he did those first three. And so it was an interesting story. I thought it was great because he was famous for never adulterating the rum. They called it the real McCoy because Bill McCoy would never cut it with anything. So he wouldn't cut the rum with turpentine, wood alcohol, prune juice, water, which is what a lot of the other guys were doing. And so those other products got nicknamed booze and hooch and rot gut. That's where those terms come from. McCoy never did that, so they called his product the real McCoy. And that's why we basically all know that term today. So I'm sitting in my office one day thinking, I wonder if anybody's ever trademarked that term, the real McCoy. And I called my attorney and asked him the question, and he laughs at me on the phone. He says, of course somebody must have. It's in the English lexicon. And I said, just go look. You know, I want to see. And he comes back and says, you know, about a week later, he goes, you're not going to believe this. Nobody's ever trademarked the real McCoy. So we applied for it. And it took about a year to get the U.S. government, finally the Patent and Trademark Office, to let us have it. And we had to argue with them about, you know, it's a real story and a real guy and all this kind of stuff. And we get the, we get the, the, the approval, and they say, okay, We'll let you have the trademark, but you have to take out an advertisement in five of the largest newspapers in America for two weeks and put our phone number in there so anybody who wants to protest this can call us and we won't give it to you. And I said, okay, five newspapers, two weeks, can I pick the two weeks? And they're like, sure, pick any two weeks you want. So I picked the two weeks of Christmas through New Year's because no one's reading the paper. And if you are, you can't find your lawyer to do anything about it. So. 12 years later, no one's ever complained. So I guess it was pretty good. So that's how we got into the, into the business. And it was really fun because while I was making the documentary film, I found these photographs that Bill McCoy had taken on the deck of his ship. And he and his crew had taken a whole ton of pictures and they donated them to the Mystic Seaport Museum and the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. And they let me use the pictures in the movie. And in some of the pictures, you can see barrels of rum being loaded onto the deck of McCoy's ship with a custom stamp on the barrel that says Barbados Rum. So we knew that that's where he was getting his rum from, Barbados. So this is my lovely wife, Jennifer, and my business partner and, you know, partner in crime and all these things. And the two of us had the terrible, awful job of going to Barbados to find the rum makers. So we met with the head of the National Archives of Barbados and showed them the pictures and said, which distillery would this have been back in 1920? And they said, well, we think it would have to be Foursquare because they were here since 1906. They would have been the first ones, or the only ones, really, to be exporting at that time. I thought it was Mount Gay, because I grew up in Connecticut racing sailboats. Everybody drinks Mount Gay over there. 
I thought it was maybe Mount Gay. So I went to the owners of Mount Gay. Frank Ward was the owner at the time. And I said, hey, Frank, you know, uh, uh, would you be interested? We'll let's talk about this. And he said, it definitely wasn't us. He said, we weren't even exporting until 1957. So it couldn't be us. It would have to be Foursquare. They would have been the only ones big enough at the time. And, and I said, Frank, you didn't export till 1957? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, your bottle says 1705. And he goes, don't worry about that. <laughs> so he's a good guy, though. And, uh, and I went and met with Richard Steele. And if you guys know Richard, he's an amazing guy, an amazing mad scientist. But he can be quite dour. He looks at you like this and often says words like rubbish. That's his favorite term when he talks about some of the other runs in the world. But he was a great guy, really, really loved the story. And when I went to him, I said, look, we want to make the rum that would have been exactly what people would be drinking on the deck of McCoy's ship. Can you make that? And he loved that idea because in 1920, nobody was adulterating the rum. Nobody was adding sugars and sweeteners and glycerin and all these things that they do today. So he really loved that idea. And that was an immediate spark. And we, we started in 2007. We started aging the process, and we had the terrible, awful job of, of going back down to Barbados and sampling the rum and going back home. We didn't start selling until 2013, and now we've got finally all the products that we have today. So that's how it all began. And one of the products is in your hand now. So you should have, uh, I think Kelvin and Shaggy were coming around with the real McCoy. This wow. is the 12 year. Yes. So stick your nose in that glass and tap some over your tongue. Now, I think I rated this uh, a, a 94. 94, 95, Thank I you. think. This was a very, one of my highest rated rums. Uh, and what did you like about it, Fred? Why did you give it such a high rating? Yeah, I, I, when I taste this, it, it's very complex. Like, there's a lot going on there. And, and it reminds me, I, I like that when I'm tasting spirit, I like to see, like, how it hits the palate. Like, the more, the more places on the palate where you pick up flavor, you know, the, the, higher, the higher I think of it. And so, like, when I taste this, I feel it on the tip, I feel it on the side. I get a little bit down the jawline, so, so I get, like, a little ticklish, you know, kind of, you know, you get the flavor, and you get a little bit of kind of, like, a spicy ticklish down the, down the jawline. Uh, this, this has a lot going on for it. Thank you. It really is. And that's a blend of, it's a blend of column and pot. You know, Richard has a, a two-column uh, coffee still. Enos Coffee invented this thing in about 1890 or so, 1893. And so it makes a lighter style. And then he's also got, he's also got a Forsyth still, which is the Forsyth family's been making stills in Scotland for about 271 years, I guess, this year. And, and, um, and they, they made the still actually for High West. The new still that High West bought is also a Forsyth. Richard Seals family's had a Forsyth for, still forever. That's the 1,750-liter pot still. So he blends those two. And so what you're drinking is a, a blend of pot and column, but they're blended together first, then aged. So they're not aged separately in different barrels. They're blended, then aged like that. So he'll do, um, some, some barrels will be, have a heavy blend, so much more pot still and much less column. And then he'll do other blends that are lighter blends, so a lot more column and a lot less pot. And that's the difference between all the Richard Seal expressions. So if you, if you see our 12-year our versus uh, a Dorley's 12-year, a Dorley's 10-year, those products have you know, different amounts of, of pot and column still. That's what makes the difference. And they are absolutely amazing. Now he's got no additives in anything that he makes, so it's a really beautiful way that he goes about it. So if we were gonna buy a bottle at your local liquor store, the real McCoy, say mm -hmm. the 10 and the 12, do you know what they're running retail? Yeah, so our, our three-year, which is an aged, three-year aged white rum, it comes out of the barrel almost as dark as this, maybe a little lighter than that, and we filter it back to a clear color, and that's $19.99 at Bust Out Retail. You can get it cheaper at Bedmo and places like that. K&L actually is a good spot to get it. 
Um, and then our five year is $28.99, and that's like the top retail price. Our 12 year is $49.99, and the limited edition 10 year is $59.99. So that's an incredible price for something like that. That's 10 years blended with 12 years. No fake age statements, no additives, no rush on the fermentation, no rush on the distillation. Really, really hard to make this. This is as, as good as it gets in this industry in terms of the quality of the, the craftsmanship coming out of Richard Seal. And it's really interesting for me personally because as a documentary guy, I'm all about research. I spend a lot of time researching my films. And with this, it's just been a huge research project. I've spent eight years in, apprenticing with Richard and learning about distillation, fermentation, maturation, blending through him. I also did a, a short apprenticeship in, in Martinique at Rome Clement, Rome JM, Rome Nissan. And then I went over to Scotland and I did a very, another short apprenticeship at uh, the Bell and Dalek Distillery in, in, in Aberlour, Scotland. And it was just an absolutely amazing experience, but I've gotten to work with a lot of different masters over the years. It's really interesting to see the traditional style that Richard uses on his rums, and it's very unique in the industry. So a little thought on kind of like, you know, the, 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 the process and the, and the flavors that, you know, how they, they get to this. I just, I just kind of want to talk about something that's a little bit of a, of a controversial subject on rum, and that's sugar. And uh, a lot of brands will... You know, Bailey mentioned it, they'll add glycerin, they'll add honey syrup, they'll add uh, Moscato, they'll add uh, straight sugar, and you'll test a bottle and it'll be, you know, 40 to 100 grams of sugar, you know, equivalent of like six to a dozen sugar packets, and that's, you no, know. 45 sugar packets. 45. There's two grams of sugar in a sugar packet. Mm -hmm. There are some rums out there with 92 grams. Oh my God. Some yeah. rums out there have, and you probably know the names, have 92 grams of sugar between 25 and 90 are pretty common the most around the 30s and the 40s yeah. so think about that that's two 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 grams per sugar packet so if you have a 45 gram sugared rum that's 20 packets of sugar in one bottle and so that won't even dissolve in the liquid in that small amount of liquid if you put 20 sugar packets in a bottle of rum and shook it up you would, it would look like a christmas ball it would never go away so they have to use high fructose corn syrup and glycerin and other things to get it to blend in there so when you're drinking the super sugared rums, the candied rums, you have to recognize how much is in there really to make that happen. And there's not a lot that go really high. There's a few, but a lot of them are sort of in the middle today. Yeah, and really, I bring that up because that's, they can't do that in bourbon, you know. In bourbon, you, you add something and, you know, the federal government will come after you. And you can say, you can say bourbon flavored with X, that's different, but... You can't add any 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 coloring. You can't add any flavoring uh, to bourbon. With rye whiskey, if you don't see straight rye on the bottle, then they can add up to 2.5 percent of, of flavoring. And uh, in Canadian whiskey, they can add up to 9.09 percent of, of various things. So this is one. If we're talking about the the rum versus whiskey thing as a whole, it depends on the on the category. But in terms of purity, you know, bourbon definitely has a nod for for being absolute in purity because they don't they can't add anything. But in terms of the way like you all are doing the rum, you know, that's pretty close. But you still are adding a little coloring. Yeah, Richard adds still adds adding some coloring. Caramel. Yeah, Richard Richard does spirit caramel because spirit caramel actually has a bitter flavor to it, and the problem is, you know, I know they say they don't put any any coloring in in uh, bourbon. But the reality of that, including all the Scotch whiskeys, is they definitely do. 
No, they don't on bourbon. They yes, don't. They do. But anyway, they so don't the, way, the way they do it, <laughs> they don't on bourbon. So, so you see that color right there? This is the color that it comes out of the barrel at 63.5 ABV. That's what Richard does. All of his barreling is at 63.5. So when it comes out of the barrel, it's got that at about 10 years, right? So when you put, blend that at 100% of this at 63.5 with 60% water, you know, to get it down to 80 proof, it changes the color. So he goes in and does the spirit caramel just like the Scotch whiskey guys do. Scotch whiskey. <laughs> I said bourbon. I said bourbon. The bourbon guys do. And the bourbon guys do not. If they do, they're, in, for, they're in violation of federal code. But anybody who's going for a, a richer, deeper color, the only way to keep it in there is to go higher ABV. And that's why the style in rum now is to go higher ABV. This is actually 46%, so it doesn't have to have as much. But yeah, all the, uh, all the folks that are going down to 80 proof are typically going to have to add something. Or it has what we affectionately refer to in the spirits industry as a cat piss yellow spirit. That's what it starts to look like. So if you see some of the, um, the rum agricoles don't do it typically, so you see they have a much, much lighter color to them. That's why, because everything that comes out of a still is clear as water, right? Color won't persist through, through fermentation, I mean through distillation. When you vaporize it, it goes up as an alcoholic uh, a vapor, comes over in the still, comes down in the condenser, recondenses, it comes out clear as water. So if you're going to get that kind of a product, it's only coming from the barrel, unless you're adding something else to it. A lot of times people put in all sorts of artificial colors. There's actually a, a color called Gosling's Black that you can buy from MGP. MGP sells Gosling's Black, and it's actually black number one, two, three, and four that you can buy from MGP, and people pour that in all sorts of different drinks in the United States, especially those rums that are opaque. If you get to the total black rums, that can't ever exist in nature. You could, they talk about black barrels and all this bullshit. They don't, they don't actually ever do that. You can't, it gets a saturation point after about you know, nine months or so. And you get to a really nice, rich amber color. It'll get a little bit darker as it gets more particulate matter in it over the 10 years or 12 years. But it's never going to turn black. And so the only way you get there is Gosling's number five, you know. Okay, so Josh came around and filled you guys, or gave you guys a little sipper of the Zinfandel cask. Yeah, the Zinfandel cask, uh, a four square. It's an eight-year-old pot and column blend. Uh, bourbon barrels. It's 11. It's 11? I believe it. Tell us, tell us what it is. Come on, Josh. So it's 11. The, what is it, Chad? the four square Zinfandel cask is one of, Richard and Bailey work together to produce real McCoy. Richard has created the exceptional cast series to basically let him go totally unhinged and make whatever he wants and never have to make it again. Mm -hmm. um, so all of these are limited editions. The Zinfandel is 11 years old, five years of ex-bourbon, six years of Zinfandel, one spirit, single blended, so two distillates. Yummy. Um, and then it gets blended with 11-year-old ex-bourbon, so that's a complicated spirit. At 46% um, and no additives, including caramel coloring for this one. So stick your nose in the glass, tap some over your tongue, and, and see how this one's different. See what that Zinfandel cask adds or changes for your experience. What are you guys getting on that? Grape? I get raisins. I smell raisins. Toasted marshmallow. Toasted marshmallow? Good. This label actually says one-year-old. Yeah, we got, a, we got a little typo in the label. There's a smudge. 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 It's 11. It's definitely, that's going to say This it. rum goes to 11. <laughs> what else are you guys getting from this Zinfandel? Where, where are the Zinfandel barrels coming from? Trinchero. Okay. Winery in California. What's the name of the, of the 
So it's not bourbon, it's rum. It's, so real McCoy is made with Richard at Four Square Rum. And that's Four Square Rum outside of Four Square Distillery, yeah. Yeah, Four Square and they'll, and they'll acquire bourbon barrels from everybody. Anyone. Yeah, Anyone. I mean, that's bourbon barrels are very hot in demand. And, and bourbon, they can only use the barrels once. And that's actually where they get all their color. They're not adding coloring. If they are, they're in, they're in violation of federal code, and they you know they could get a big fine. Mm -hmm. But um, so th there there are brokers who sell used bourbon barrels to tequila, to scotch, to rum. It, actually, Tabasco is aged in uh, used bourbon barrels. So it's a. There's various charcoal. What's that? Oh, go ahead. If you want. Why, why didn't you, I didn't even hear? It's activated this. charcoal. When you when you when you char the barrel, what you're doing is you're creating a, a, a an activation that, that's going to do something to the distillate, right? And what happens with your stills is most of what's coming out of your still is something that has a lot of acid in it. Like alcohol is very acidic when you drink drink it in concentration. So if you use copper stills, that helps neutralize the acids. And if you if you use burnt, you know, charred barrels, it helps to, it mellows out methane, which naturally exists in wines and beers and things like that, but also in spirits. And so by having the char layer, you're creating something where the neutral uh, spirit, I mean, sorry, the, uh, the, um, the, 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 the activated charcoal is going to now neutralize those acids and turn them to bases. It's going to get rid of sulfurs, little chemical reaction that happens that mellows it out. But before people knew about that, say you're someone coming from the old world, you arrive in the Caribbean, you've been eating on your ride pickled herring on the way over. The barrel is the, is, the shipper, is, is the shipping container of the old world. If you get to Hispaniola, what is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and you've got this empty barrel, you ate all the fish, you're really thirsty for some great local rum, and what are you going to put the rum in? Your fish barrel. Except, how do you clean a barrel? With fire. That's definitely, we, were, we really don't have an exact, in terms of like how bourbon became uh, put in new charred oak barrels, there's a lot of different theories. The one fact that we do know that we definitely have is that in the early 1800s, there were some French brothers who were purposely charring barrels, specifically for whiskey makers in, uh, in Louisville. So that's the earliest record we have. There are a lot of legends around uh, where the, the charring came from. I think if you go out the to the Heaven Hill, they tell you that yeah. uh, Elijah Craig had a, his barn burned down. Yeah. This is a great story. Somehow his barrels got charred on the inside, but not on the outside. Yes, you know we, you know what we call that, the Immaculate Charception. <laughs> it's a Kentucky but, thing. So the, uh, basically whiskey, whiskey's really full of shit on the, on the labels, and if you pick up a bottle... You like you'll see these you'll see these dates. They'll say kind of like what Bailey was talking about with Mount Gay. You know they'll say they've been around since uh, 1783 or or whatever, and it's very inaccurate. You know you know so they're they're yes that person was alive and distilling then, but that person now owning the company was not distilling uh, back then. But um, yeah, so whiskey's usually full of shit. Rum's full of shit too. But uh, rum's definitely full of shit. But rum, but Andy. rum at least, like when you really press them, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and whiskey, they try to like, no, really, he was really back there, and the the wind was blowing, and it and it caught it just right and it charred the barrel. So they'll push a legend or something that's uh, a bunch of BS as as long as they can. But uh, but, but rum, rum's 
definitely got some some shit stories. Oh yeah, sea monsters and pirates. And sea monsters, pirates. You know, it, a lot of it's true. Like the pirates would really rob you for for rum. I mean, that stuff. That's it's really true. You, if, if you ever read those old texts about the pirates, my God, they were awful people. Man, <laughs> they would. If, if you were if you were at sea in the 1700s and the pirates were coming and you didn't have a shot, just jump right in the ocean. Just, don't let them capture you. Oh, yeah, the Captain Morgan thing, if you guys really knew what Captain Morgan did to people, you'd never want to touch that rum. Uh, he was famous for stringing people up by their balls. Yeah, he'd, not, he'd string you nice up at, uh, from a, a lot nice of guy. things. Yeah, yeah they, they were not good people. But, uh, <laughs> so we just came around again, and Josh, you're pouring out the 2004. Yeah. Um, all right, so yeah, what... I love woo, but I want to know why the woo, okay? so This is easily one of the best spirits in the world right now. Not just rum, but the I mean, just every category. It's, it's amazing. So what do you guys get? Stick your nose in that glass. I don't think I, don't think I got oh, anything. Come on, Fred. Yeah, what's, what's going on here? I'm getting robbed. If you're having to talk and you don't get to drink. I mean, the whole reason why I do this is so I can drink, you know? Yeah, it's funny, Bailey went around his whole story about how he got into this. My story, I, my, how I got into this was, uh, I was, I'm a veteran. I came home from the Iraq War, and the only job I could get was as a food writer, and eventually write about, about uh, bourbon and then, and then rum and wine. And um, you get a taste for it, and it's like you want to find a way to keep doing it. So if you ever get an opportunity to work in this business, it's awesome. But you got to be responsible, so you know, drink responsibly. So, so, Chad, can you give us a little rundown on the 2004? 2004 is a similar game to the Zinfandel cask, except way higher proof. So 59% alcohol, and then it's all ex-bourbon cask. Um, 100% 11 years old, first, first second, third fill ex-bourbon. Um, this is pretty much balls to the walls rum. That's the short end of that. Now, what, what does balls to the wall mean? <laughs> Ask Captain Morgan. Ask Captain Morgan. <laughs> Ooh, not a nice guy. Not a nice guy. <laughs> he said that, by the way. So some really, really beautiful rum. Thanks for Foursquare Thank you. bringing these out tonight. Honor to be a part of it. And now we're going to swing back the pendulum in the other direction. So Shaggy's coming around right now with some bourbon. And this is the High West... American Prairie Bourbon. So Fred, you know, can you tell us about the American Prairie? So again, going back to kind of the culture of High West, uh, American Prairie is a blend. It's a blend from uh, different distilleries. The only distillery that I know of is MGP. The other ones are not disclosed. And it's basically a blend of like two and uh, 12 year old I don't know if their if their batches have changed in recent years, but it includes their distillery. They, they built a distillery. Yeah, they, they it includes their distillery now. But it, you know, when they were first coming out with this, they you know had different uh, blends, and it, it's a really it, it's a really nice uh, product, and it's also one of those that kind of show you the that show you the the progression of of where kind of craft is gone, and like these these are these smaller distilleries that were purchasing stocks from um, from MGP are now blending them with their own. And you you get a little bit of their own their 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 flavor in there, uh, as well as the as the larger distillery and some of the like Kentucky distilleries, but I actually do not know how many distilleries are in this. Um, you know, so there could be there could be three distilleries in this, there could be five. 
So that that's one of that's one of the one of the downers to to uh, some of these blends is you don't always get an opportunity to find out. Now a little lesson on blends. Blends in America were actually it's actually a very dirty term amongst distillers. If you go to a Kentucky distillery and they start talking about like putting one barrel in with like five other barrels, they won't call it blending. They'll call it mingling or they'll call it marrying. That's because in the 1890s, the Canadian blenders were coming down here and uh, getting in on their territory and trying to stop the Bottle and the Bond Act. The Canadian blends and the American blends would have grain neutral spirit in, the, in that time and as well as in the 1930s. And that was, uh, be, became a very, um, became like one of their main foes, one of their big competitors in the whiskey market. And so they just hated blends. And so they just completely eliminated it from the vocabulary. That's kind of Kentucky's way. Instead of dealing with something, you just avoid the word entirely. So they, to this day, uh, people like Jimmy Russell won't even use the word blend. And, uh, but now, because of like High West and brands like Barrel Bourbon are showing you that blending can be a good thing. And this is, this is one of those examples. Yes. What do you guys think of this American Prairie Bourbon here? Very nice. But what food words are you reminded of, or or what what comes to mind? What do you what do you remember? Banana bread. That's beautiful. Pipe tobacco. Nice. A lot of oak. Pete, what are you getting? Banana. See, banana is actually usually banana is like a is a distinctive trait and a yeast. From, from some of the distilleries, like Jack Daniels has a distinctive banana note. Barton has a very distinctive uh, banana note, as does uh, Old Forester. So when you tell me that you're getting banana, um, and it, it's you know, very consistent in the crowd, you know, that helps us narrow it down to some of the distilleries. That banana note is actually acetaldehyde. That's a, just a high aldehyde spirit. Well, some of the yeasts will have the, have the banana note, and yeah, they will, yeah. they completely really they live by it. Like Jack Daniels, next time you taste Jack Daniels, which you get a mouthful of banana. For sure. And charcoal. And charcoal, yeah. Um, charcoal. Charcoal banana. Charcoal and banana. So, but if you think about it, uh, and if you go back historically, the people who would be making whiskey would have not been scientists. They would have been using a little pot still. And initially what comes off the pot still first is what we call the heads. The most volatile chemical compounds come off first and it smells like turpentine or uh, acetone or fingernail polish remover. But then, after a few minutes in that little pot still, what comes off is peanuts. It smells like peanuts. And then notes like green apple. And so, you know, these guys didn't have, like, gauges or things that were telling them, but they knew enough that, like, that smells like poison, that tastes like poison, <laughs> and now that tastes like nuts, and now that tastes like green apples, and now this tastes like bananas, that enough of that... They knew that the difference between poison and food, and that's where they would make the heart cut. You know, like, again, this is traditionally these spirits were made not by scientists, but by normal farmers. And so that's where those kind of flavor notes, that's where we decide what's good and bad, is when it stops tasting like a chemical and it starts tasting like an apple, you know? That's, that's how we divide between, you know, heads yeah, and heart. And, and there's an interesting thing about the, the way you do your cuts, you know, you've heard of the heads, the hearts, and the tails, right? You guys all heard these terms? So basically, when you turn on your when you turn on your still, the first thing that happens is your most friable alcohols start to go up into the still, right up into the column. Those are your methanols, right? So that's your methane-based product. 
Now that's going to concentrate very early on. It's going to smell like rotten eggs. So that's exactly what those guys were doing is they would smell that first cup that came out of the still. It would smell like rotten eggs and they wouldn't drink it. And that was very smart because during Prohibition, when a lot of people started home distilling and doing bathtub gin and things like that, they were, they were actually not, they didn't recognize you're not supposed to drink the methanol because the methanol is poison. So they would drink it and die or go blind. That's why that was happening. So today, a, a trained distiller understands, you know, a chemical engineer or chemist is going to understand these differences and not bring in the ethanols. But then what happens is you get your, your, uh, your ethyls start to fly up, and now you get several different types of ethyl alcohol that rise up into the column, and you get really beautiful spirit that come out of that, and you want to capture that stuff. So between about 160 degrees and about 178 degrees, you get your methanols, and that's the not-so-good stuff. From 178-degree temperature in your, in your wash to about 212 degrees, you're going to get your ethanols, and over 212, you're boiling water. So whatever's in your water supply is now going to come in and mix in with your spirit. So you want to cut the tails off there, because if there's you know heavy metals, there might be copper, lead, you know mercury, all sorts of things that are in that, and you don't want to put that in your beautiful spirit. So you you boil that over into a, a different bucket, and that's called the tails. That's how that works. Yes, sir. I just have a question. Of all the fruit brandies, which I admit I like some, I, I like Slivovitz, which is a Hungarian plum brandy. Mm -hmm. Now this doesn't smell like plum, but it's the same viscosity. Is a plum brandy. Hmm. So I'm just curious, how did they get that fruit viscosity and, and back of the tongue thickness? Are you checking the high west? Or no, yeah, he's drinking the whiskey. Yeah. The whiskey, yeah. That uh, would probably. Uh, go ahead, Fred. So one of the one of the things about uh, American whiskeys, they have pretty strict regulations on their distillation, and they're these guys are coming off the stills at really really low proofs. And so you have a lot more of the kind of like fatty acids that will come through in and the peach brandies, the plum brandies are, I, I don't know the brand, I don't know what, what you're talking about, which one you're talking about. Uh, I mean, I drink a lot of those and they all come off, they're all, they're all uh, coming off of pot stills usually and they're coming off of really, really low proofs and the consistency there with what you're tasting is, it, it might be that, it might be you're getting some of those kind of same kind of acids. Um, I'm just talking about the viscosity. Yeah, well, that, that, that's the exactly. Yeah. yeah, the mouthfeel of it. Yeah. And rum, rums will rums will vary pretty much. Well, they'll be all over the place with with uh, with proofs. And uh, I actually think I think molasses has has more character in it to survive like high proof distillation than grains do. Um, you know, grains grains. Uh, you hit grains hard where like you get above 160 proof and it's like they're just you know bleached out you know, character you hit molasses you know, but over 170 proof you're still tasting a shitload of molasses so i think i think molasses i think i think making rum is harder because of the molasses it's not as easy to um to get good molasses as it is to get you know corn or barley um, fermentation is harder too. Fermentation is very hard. Yeah. Sulfur content in the. Just try getting the molasses to blend with water for fermentation. You know, you can take you can take grain and put it in a vat, pour some water on it, and it'll turn into a nice soup. But if you take molasses and pour it in a vat and pour water in there, the molasses just stays on the bottom of the vat in a big puddle. And the water just rests on top of it. It's next and the cleanup to get is it crazy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like just just imagine covering covering your entire kitchen in molasses. You know that sticky substance. It's just, you know, it's not all getting back out. in the day. It must have been horrible standing there for hours doing that. You know, 
But yeah. actually today the way you do it is you vaporize it. So when you, you take your molasses supply and you put it through a pressurized pump and a little nozzle and you, you send that molasses through the nozzle and it just basically vaporizes, it turns it into a spray. You do the same thing with your water and that's how you get it into the fermentation tank. So if you have a thousand liter tank, you're gonna high pressure pump this stuff in there through this little hose and, and that valve will split it all up and then it gets it to basically blend together. And that's a, that's a good efficient way to get those two to come together. You don't have to heat it up or anything like that. But I think distillation proof might be the, the answer to like what you're looking for. And unfortunately, you know, nobody's putting their distillation proof on bottles. You have, to, you have to get a book to see what their proofs are. So we just came around and Shaggy poured out, or Kevin, where were you? Kevin, you were? Uh, campfire. Okay, campfire. so this is the High West Campfire. So we're whiskey again, but what's the deal with this whiskey, Fred? This is crazy whiskey. So <laughs> this, is, this is one of those that you talk. are, you either love it or you hate it. And uh, in Kentucky, everybody hated it because it was a blend of, of bourbon, rye, and peated scotch. So pretty, uh, pretty innovative uh, for, when, for when it came out. Uh, some brands had tried to do similar things before. We had with that, there was a brand called Phillips Union that did some similar blending and it didn't take off. But High West... Um, High West made it work. People, a lot of people loved it. I think, uh, you know, I write for a magazine called Whiskey Advocate. I'm their American Whiskey Reviewer. I did not review this one, but it, it received a, a pretty high score from the magazine. But it's a, it's one of those where I think you get, you get a lot of scotch, you know, yeah. a lot of scotch. And when it, whenever you get a peat at anything, um, the only thing that I think can probably overtake it is like a really funky... Uh, Jamaican rum or a mezcal, you know. So, so peated scotch is is a palate killer every time. Now, do we, do we have another one? Do we have we have? Are we doing the peerless, or is or is that if they want it? If they want it. If they want it. <laughs> okay. No, no, I'm sorry. This is where the whole thing turns. To, I love you, man. We just killed their palate, and now we're gonna. All right. Well, th this is a. This is a this is a uh, a small Kentucky craft distillery. Uh, they, this is a, a two year old straight rye whiskey, and it was uh, whiskey advocate. We named it one of the top fifteen of the year. It was the highest ranked uh, uh, American craft whiskey. So we'll have shag pass it's uh, it, it's one of those what what they're doing what they're doing differently is in fermentation. Uh, most American whiskeys go through a sour mashing process. That is where they take the, the, the back set uh, from the distillation. So like when you distill grains, like a lot of it will, the grains will drop down. There'll be like a, kind of like a soupy mess down there. They'll take that soupy mess and they'll add it to the, the freshly cooked grains and the, and the new, uh, the, the new kind of cereal, if you will. They'll add that and that'll kind of help activate uh, fermentation and they will add yeast. They, the, and that basically, that was, really perfected uh by the way the first known record we have of the sour mash technique is from a woman in 1818 uh Catherine spears carpenter fry someone i wrote about extensively in my book whiskey women she's a she was a badass um but the kentucky distillers really perfected that because it would help decrease um bacterial infestations and if by not by by doing it they basically keep out wild yeast and 
Peerless does not do that process. They completely sanitize. They go through an extremely hygienic sanitation process in their distillery, so no uh, outside yeast invades, and they sweet mash, so they don't add a back set to it, and you you can really taste it in their in their off the still stuff. This is a two year old rye that to me tastes like it's you know close to nine years old. It's it's phenomenal. Why is it that rye can take on what seemingly take on more age in less time? Is there something about the pH of the distillate that makes it pull more out of the So uh, rye is is highly enzyme. It has very high in enzymes. So when you're when you're actually fermenting it it will bubble over and so if you don't, if you don't ferment it right you'll it'll foam com completely most of it will foam out of like like the fermentation tank so there is something to that but i think um you know i think it's just a more approachable you know grain when it's when it's young um whereas like wheat wheat re requires some time in the wood and you know there's there used to be a saying that weeded bourbons were better young, um, and I think that has changed in the last in the last ten years because the quality of the rye they're getting. Keep in mind that most of the rye that's being used in American whiskey is coming from uh, from Europe, like Germany and and uh, Finland and Canada, and not much of it's coming from the United States. But with the rise of uh, rye whiskey. Uh, has come a lot of uh, cereal farmers in America growing more rye. So I think there's been a concentrated effort into uh, getting getting rye in the hands of these distillers to make something. Beautiful. Yeah, Chad. Uh, so on the topic of both the Peerless and the Campfire, I have two questions that are loosely correlated, mainly for Bailey, but Fred, I would love your opinion as well. Um, between rum and whiskey, which of the two categories is more varied in possible flavor, and which one's harder to produce? Well, I think I mentioned the harder to produce was definitely rum. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting question. I, I don't know if you can answer the question effectively saying that one is more flavorful or, or, or you can manipulate it in some way to generate naturally different flavors or more flavors. You're, what you're really doing is working with the same chemical engineering no matter what you know, uh, wine you get with. You know, it's whatever's in that wine is what you get to work with. I mean, molasses is a highly complex material because it's already concentrated, right? So a rye or a, a um, you know, if you're going to cut potatoes and start making a vodka, um, these things are not highly concentrated products that you're working with. Molasses used to be sugarcane juice and has been boiled down and boiled down and boiled down in order to extract the sugar. And what you have left is the byproduct, the industrial waste of white sugar manufacturing is molasses. But what that is is a highly nutrient-rich, um, very mineral-based, um, very sugary, very sweet product. So it already is in a concentrated form when you try to start your fermentation. So you're going to get you know, a pretty intense load from it. And I think, honestly, I don't know for sure because I really don't know much about bourbon production. I, I don't know, I've never studied that. And I don't want to talk about things that I don't really understand very well. So the, the, I, I speculate that the rye... And the flavor components of rye are very intense because that that's naturally what that what that product generates. You know, if you if you eat rye bread, it's it, you've got a lot of flavor in there. You know, pumpernickel breads and things like that have a lot of flavor in them, and and regular you know wheat breads are a little bit mellower. So when you just taste those kinds of sandwiches, you can notice that difference. So I think what you're really getting at is what's the 
you know, the, what are the components of the, of the wine that you're initially working with? And I think molasses, because of its concentrated nature, is going to give you a lot of flavors, a lot of complexity. So you guys all have, as our final dram tonight, a little rye whiskey from Peerless. And for those of you, let's, let's, let's try to figure out who, who liked whiskey better tonight. Out of all the stuff we tasted, we tasted nearly, how many marks tonight, guys? Twelve. Nine, nine marks? We did nine marks. Out of the nine marks, how many folks feel like they enjoyed the whiskey more? Whoa! <laughs> that hand went up so slow, too. So slow. And so, how many folks really loved the rums tonight the most? I wanted to answer his question, too. <laughs> after, after whiskey got its ass kicked there. Uh, I, I do think bourbon is pigeonholed. Uh, you, the regulations really pigeonholed because they can't do a lot. I mean, you're starting to see a lot of barrel finishes. Yep. But really, the classic bourbons are column still, then uh, doubler, and then barrel. And then yeah, that's, that's the classic. With rum, you know, you have a much wider range and it depends on the country. But um, I think that you can get more flavor profiles in rum than you can in bourbon. Uh, with rye whiskey, it's a little different. Scotch, scotch kind of beats everybody uh, with, uh, with that. But if, in terms of American whiskey, I, I think scotch has the greatest range that they can hit because of their regions and the peat. Um, but they're all better than vodka. So. <laughs> Am I right? Am I right? Guys, I gotta tell you, uh, Pedro, you are awesome. This oh, this absolutely. whole crew is Pedro. great. Thanks for the crew. Give it up for the Kanye crew. Kanye Thank crew. you. Thanks. You guys are awesome. You guys are so awesome. Stick around. We're gonna have uh, some live music tonight. A little dancing to be had. But before you dance, you have to buy a book. Yes. Right around the corner, uh, Chevalier Books is their pop-up bookstore right here on the big table around the corner. And I'm expecting another kid, so <laughs> every dollar helps, man. I'm telling you right now. And Fred will, uh, Fred will autograph your book, maybe write your little note in there. So pick one up on the way up and stick around. Have some more rum that you all love so much. Let's give it up to Bailey and Fred. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show is produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget. Drink to remember. <laughs>